Persuasion by Jane Austen, Volume 2, Chapter 12. Previously on Persuasion, we have basically finished, or we have finished the book. This is the last chapter. So what have we done previously is the entire novel. So Anne Elliot, who was in love with Captain Wentworth and was engaged to him, but then was persuaded to break the engagement. They meet again eight years later and she's still in love with him, but she doesn't know if he's in love with her. And then he's flirting with Louisa, but then Louisa falls and hits her head on a rock. And then he, she, Louisa ends up engaged to Captain Bennick instead of Captain Wentworth. So then Captain Wentworth is free and then they meet again in Bath. But then it seems like her cousin, Mr. Elliot, is courting Anne. And so he gets it jealous and angry. But last chapter, we got the resolution of all of these issues. Anne is talking to Captain Harville in within the hearing distance of Captain Wentworth. And they are debating whether men or women are more faithful in love. And they don't really agree, but Anne kind of takes the point that women are the ones who feel more strongly longer. And it's during that conversation that she finally, I guess, convinces Captain Wentworth that she is still in love with him. And so he writes her a letter, a super romantic letter about how he's half in agony, half in hope hoping that she will still marry him after all of this time. And then she goes racing off through Bath to find him. Not really. She walks out. That's actually something that's in one of the adaptation movies. But in the book, she just walks out with Charles Musgrove, her brother-in-law. And they go wandering down the street and they bump into Wentworth. And Charles hands her off to Wentworth and says, asks if Wentworth can walk her home, which he agrees to. And then they go for a walk not just directly home, they go off to like the park or whatever and they walk around and they talk a bunch and they get re-engaged and it's all very lovey-dovey and exciting. And then in the evening they go to the already scheduled card party at the house and again they get some time to talk and it's very lovey-dovey and happy. And that brings us to chapter 12, sort of the wrap-up of the entire novel and that's where we're at. So we'll be back with chapter 12. So chapter 12 starts with a question. The first line of the chapter is, who can be in doubt of what followed? And I think that's a very entertaining way to end it, or to start it, not end it, ah. but to end the book, the novel, start the chapter, saying that, so this last chapter is when they have, you know, confessed their love to each other, decided they're going to be married. And so, of course, you know what's going to happen, right? So she's you know, it's Jane Austen as the narrator being like, okay, you know where this is going, correct? We're all on the same page. Good. I'm glad. Um, this is not really anything that's up for debate or questionable. Like we all know what's happening here. Who can be in doubt? And she has some great lines here. It says, when any two young people take it into their heads to marry, they are pretty sure by perseverance to carry their point, be they ever so poor or ever so imp imprudent or ever so little likely to be necessary to each other's ultimate comfort. This may be bad morality with which to conclude, or to con this may be bad morality to conclude with, but I believe it to be the truth. And if such parties succeed, how should a Captain Wentworth and an Anne Elliot, with the advantage of maturity of mind, consciousness of right, and one independent fortune between them, fail of bearing down every opposition? They might, in fact, have borne down a great deal more than they met with, for there is little to distress them beyond the want of graciousness and warmth. So other than her family is just awful, it was fine. But her family, while being awful, at least were not trying to step in the way. Um, and then it uh, goes on to talk about like what has changed now. So Captain Wentworth, with five and 20,000 pounds, and as high in his profession as merit and activity could place him, was no longer nobody. 
he was now esteemed quite worthy to address the daughter of a foolish spendthrift baronet, who had not had principle or sense enough to maintain himself in the situation in which Providence had placed him, and who could give his daughter at present but a small part of the share of ten thousand pounds, which must be hers hereafter. So, it's this is pointing out that their situations have flip-flopped in the eight years since. So when he first you know, had asked for her hand eight years ago and was the daughter of a baronet who at least at least seemed to have plenty of money and was doing well and had this whole estate and everything. And he was a nobody. He was just, you know, a lower level lieutenant or something in the Navy. He hadn't had the promotion up to being a captain. He hadn't had all of the prize money won in the war that he won in the, you know, over the last couple, last eight years. And so over the last eight years, his place in society has risen. He has risen up in position in the Navy and in wealth, and her position has lowered. For She's still the daughter of a baronet, but they are no longer living in their country estates in Kellynch. He is known to have gone through all of his money and have no money at all, you know, to be very not the wealthy baronet he's supposed to be. And so he is now a spendthrift baronet who didn't have principle and sense. So their positions have flip-flopped, where she still technically is socially, you know, above him in that she's the daughter of a baronet, but they don't have the money. So they are much more equally matched at this point. And it's also making the point that really the money they're going to live off of is his, because her dowry has gone missing. Um, her father has spent it. He can't give her the money she's supposed to get. Um so she's supposed to get a share of £10,000, which I believe means that the £10,000 is required by uh, is required for her dowry, which would have been through the mom, her mother's dowry. So Anne's mom's dowry would have required what her dowry would have been. Um, I believe it's usually like written into the marriage settlements. So she is, um, Anne is required to get her fair share of the 10000 which I believe means it would be split three ways, right? Between the three sisters, they'll each get a third of 10,000. Um, but because Sir Walter's in so much debt, he can't afford to do that right now. But legally, he does have to give it to her eventually. Um, and I believe that at the very least, at, like in his will, he'll be required, like as his assets are being set up, like in his will, he's at least at the very least required to give her her fair share of that 10,000. So it, so it might be an inheritance she doesn't get till he dies, even though she's supposed to get it on her marriage um, because he doesn't have the money right now. Um, and then it goes through some of what the different characters think about this marriage, which shows us a lot about who those characters are. So Sir Walter, um, And he now sees Sir Captain Wentworth as a good match for her. And we can see his biases coming in. We've seen through the entire novel that he is obsessed with how people look. And so he, spending time with Captain Wentworth, had seen him repeatedly by daylight and eyed him well. And he was very much struck by his personal claims. So he thinks Captain Wentworth is handsome and therefore he's good enough for her daughter, for his daughter very um not great look at who this person is and it shows us how shallow sir walter is that his big thing is captain wentworth is handsome and therefore he's fine and so and he felt that his superiority of appearance might not unfairly be balanced against her superiority of rank so he's still very proud of his rank and how high up they are socially but he now thinks they're a good match because he is basically because he's pretty and she's um, has a high ranking socially. Her superiority of rank and his superiority of beauty. So kind of like um, this is something that comes up with Sense and Sensibility. They talk about why Marianne and Captain Brand or Colonel Brandon would be a good match. And it's because she's pretty and he's rich. And I feel like this is a very similar line. They're a good match because he's pretty. And she's high ranking. It's very similar sentiments about how why they're a good match. Like together, they're the perfect person for Sir Walter because pretty and high in society are his, you know, are that makes the perfect person. 
That's why he thinks he's so great, because he's so handsome. He himself thinks, you know, Sir Walter thinks that Sir Walter is beautiful and, you know, high-ranking and perfect. So that's why he's so great. And he also thinks that his name sounds good, which is something they talked about before in the novel that he thinks that, um, or that Wentworth is a name that is associated with an, a high-ranking family, maybe an earl, a lord of some kind. Um, and I don't think that Captain Wentworth is related to him, or at least not closely or in any way that makes any difference. But because the name sounds like it, it's enough to be prestigious to Sir Walter. And it's good enough, at least, that he was going to pen it in and write it into that book that is his favorite. So we're going back to that first chapter of the novel where Sir Walter is talking or is, you know, reading his favorite book of all, The Baronetage about all of this, about all the baronets and all their families and the history and everything and how he'd written in Mary's marriage. So he has deemed Anne's marriage to be just as good as Mary's marriage. And so she gets written into the book in his, it's his little diary. So he's happy about it. Um, next, we get to hear about Lady Russell and how she feels about this marriage. And, um, basically it says Lady Russell, um, felt some pain in understanding and relinquishing Mr. Elliot, um, and was taking some pains to be truly acquainted with Captain Wentworth. And she did it and she felt like she had learned to be, mis she had learned that she had been mistaken when with, with regard to both that she had been unfairly influenced influenced by appearances in each, that because Captain Wentworth's manners had not suited her own ideas, she had been too quick in suspecting them to indicate a character of dangerous impetuosity, and that because Mr. Elliot's manners had precisely pleased her in their propriety and correctness, their general politeness and suavity, she had been too quick in receiving them as the certain result of the most correct opinions and well-regulated minds. There was nothing less for Lady Russell to do than to admit that she had been pretty completely wrong and to take up a new set of opinions and hopes. That's a very interesting line there. I'm going to read that again. There was nothing less for Lady Russell to do than to admit that she had been pretty completely wrong and to take up a new set of opinions and hopes. Um, I, I don't buy it. I really... Like, the idea that she's just like, oh, okay, so she persuaded Anne not to marry him way back when, didn't want to talk about it. She has been very against getting to know him again whenever they see him in, when they saw him back at Kellynch or when they saw him in Bath. She didn't want to talk about it, didn't, you know, was fine with him marrying Louisa like, the whole thing of her not wanting to admit to being wrong throughout the whole novel, and suddenly she's just like, did do okay, I guess I was wrong. Bye, it's all fine. <laughs> like, I just, I am wondering if it's being glossed over because, I don't know why it's being glossed over. It just doesn't feel, it doesn't feel satisfactory to me. Like, I feel like this is supposed to be wrapping up the story in a neat bow, and, like, the way she talked about or she being either Jane Austen or the narrator, however you want to read this, um, the way we just did in the last little bit talking about Sir Walter and how his feelings went and how he ended up thinking about the marriage really did feel like that you fit with his character, tied it up with a little bow, chef's kiss, move on. But this ending for Lady Russell, I don't know, it just feels kind of flat to me. It just feels like, again, you're supposed to like Lady Russell, but I'm not really sure why I'm supposed to like Lady Russell, and I still don't. And so, you know, she's getting her... It's all fine because she's changed her mind now and whatever. And there's another paragraph still about Lady Russell, basically saying that she didn't have... Well, this is another, I think, good... This is a good sentence, I think. It says, There is a quickness of perception in some a nicety in the discernment of character, a natural penetration, in short, which no experience in others can equal. And Lady Russell had been less gifted in this part of understanding than her young friend. So, I mean, it's a very fancy way of saying that Lady Russell isn't very good at reading people. Um, and Anne is. 
which I guess fair enough because we've already heard a few times that Lady Russell is maybe a little too worried about prestige and the social status of people and is you know that's why she puts up with Sir Walter and doesn't see anything wrong with him and his behaviors because he's got a high social status so he couldn't have done anything wrong um and this is kind of pointing that out specifically that like she does she is dazzled by social status and maybe doesn't quite see people for who they are and so I wonder if her change of sentiment is really just that his Captain Wentworth's position in life has changed and so he is a better catch now and Anne is older and you know she was hoping that he was gonna she was gonna marry Mr. Elliot but if she has been convinced that Anne will not marry Mr. Elliot then maybe Captain Wentworth is better than nobody that's kind of my reading of this honestly no matter how like sugarcoating they're trying to be of Lady Russell I'm not buying it and I think that she's just feeling like this is better than not getting married at all at this point and how old Anne is being and how Anne is turning away another possible suitor. So she already said no to Charles Musgrove, who Lady Russell wanted her to marry. And now she's going to say no to Mr. Elliot, who Lady Russell also wanted her to be marrying. And then it goes on with, but she was a very good woman. So Lady Russell was a very good woman. And her second object was to be sensible and well-judging. Her first was to see Anne happy. Which I highlighted and put a bunch of question marks by because I'm like, what? When has it ever been her position to try and want Anne to be happy? Like, I feel like nothing. Maybe I'm completely prejudiced and wrong. And please email me and let me know that I'm completely wrong about Lady Russell if that's how you feel. But that sentence just came right out of the blue to me. I'm like, since when has Lady Russell wanted Anne to be happy? Feels like she hasn't cared about whether Anne was happy this entire time. Like, happiness was not her currency. Her currency was social status. She wanted Anne to have a better social status. She didn't want Anne to be happy. Unless we're saying that maybe her just understanding was bad and she thought that better social standing would make Anne happy. But I just, again, not buying this reading of Lady Russell. It feels like we're trying to rewrite this character in a way that doesn't make sense to me. Um, but it says that she loved Anne better than she loved her own abilities. And when the awkwardness of the beginning was over, found little hardship in attaching herself as a mother to the man who was securing the happiness of her other child. So she's staying on in the same position in their life, or in Anne's life as a pseudo-mother figure, which Anne has given talked about with her before, but I still think that Lady Russell leaves a lot to be desired as a friend. And I am not quite buying that she was just... She just wants Anne to be happy. And that's all her motivation has been this whole time. And like, I call BS. That has not been her motivation. I do not. That's not how I've read her at all. I just, this whole ending just feels very sugarcoated. And uh, I don't know. Maybe this is from Anne's perspective again. I do think that most of the time the narrator is out of Anne's head. And so I feel like this is a little biased for some somebody who really wants to continue to love Lady Russell. And from Anne's perspective, I think it would make a lot of sense for her to still want to be in a good place with Lady Russell and to want to keep her in her life that, you know, she's basically the only family she's got left. So it makes sense that she'd want to do that. And Lady Russell is, you know, working this as the best of the worst case scenarios. So whatever, it's fine. But I, I just, I think that if, I don't know, I just, I don't believe... I don't know. It's just not working for me. I'm not satisfied with this ending of Lady Russell. I don't know that I'm expressing it particularly well, but I, I, I don't like it. I'm not a fan. I would want better. I still want better for Anne than this Lady Russell. But anyway, the, the book is telling us that Lady Russell is happy enough with the wit, with the marriage and is supporting them. So good for everyone, I suppose. But the one who is happiest, apparently, is Mary. And Mary is happy about this marriage because it means that she has beaten her husband, Charles. Because, you know, she wanted one of Charles's sisters to marry Captain Wentworth. But it's even better if one of her sisters marries Captain Wentworth. And, you know, it says, what is it? Um, her own sister must be better than her husband's sisters. And it was very agreeable that Captain Wentworth 
should be a richer man than either Captain Benwick or Charles Hayter. Um, so it's again just this competition for Mary. She's winning because her sister has a husband who is richer than either of her sister-in-law's husbands. So win for Mary. She's happy about it. Um, what she's not happy about is that is seeing Anne restored to the rights of seniority. So what that means is that in this time period that um, you'd see seniority, like the, who gets to walk into dinner first and the rights of different things with seniority, which Mary has shown she's very um, conscious of in the past where she doesn't like that her mother-in-law is given precedence over her when she should be the highest based on um, the fact that she is a baronet's daughter, even though her mother-in-law is older and whatnot. Um, but anyway, married women automatically have seniority over non-married women for the most part, you know, if they're close in um, prestige, basically. And so when they were children, it goes by age. So it would have been oldest sister Elizabeth, then Anne, then Mary, as far as order of seniority. Um, but as soon as Mary got married, she got to jump the line and be the most senior, quote unquote, of all the sisters because she's the only one who's married. But now that her older sister, Anne, is married, now she gets to go back into her place of seniority. So when they're in dinner parties and stuff, Anne gets to walk in before her now. Um, so she doesn't like that. And she also doesn't like that Anne has a pretty landelette, which is a type of carriage, I believe. Um, but her consolation is that Anne is not now in line to inherit any sort of any property because Captain Wentworth doesn't have any property and is not in line to inherit anything. Um, so, you know, Anne had no upper cross hall before her, no landed estate, no headship of a family. And if they could keep, but keep Captain Wentworth from being made a baronet, she would not change situations with Anne. So as long as her husband doesn't become more, a higher level than Charles Musgrove, who's, you know, landed gentry, she needs to make sure that her husband is still better than Anne's husband in that sense. And as long as that's the case, then it's, then it's fine. And so Mary is generally pretty happy with the wedding or with the marriage. So good for her. And then we get to talk about Elizabeth, who is probably the least happy about this arrangement. It says it would be well for the eldest sister if she were equally satisfied with her situation. For a change is not very probable there. She had soon the mortification of seeing Mr. Elliot withdraw and no one of proper condition has since presented himself to raise even the unfounded hopes which sunk with him. So Elizabeth is still single. She has no real prospects of getting married at all. And, you know, she had begun to hope that she was going to marry Mr. Elliot, though it's clear that he never intended that. And uh, with him being gone, there's really nobody else um, in the wings or so, whatnot. So she's probably going to end up an old maid and she's not happy about that. So I don't have much to say about Elizabeth. She's, you know, rude and mean. And I guess her comeuppance is basically that she's going to be an old maid and just keep house for her father until he dies. And that's her life, which honestly, she seems pretty happy about. So I think that's fine. Why should she marry if she doesn't want to? I mean, the, the problem is that she does want to. Um, and that's why it's sort of her comeuppance is that she would like to marry somebody, but she only wants to marry somebody who is a baronet. And uh, she doesn't know any who want to marry her. So there you go. Then we get to hear how this affected Mr. Elliot. Um, it says it deranged his best plan of domestic happiness, his best hope of keeping Sir Walter single by the watchfulness which a son-in-law's rights would have given. Um, so it makes it clear that he was planning to marry Anne so that he could keep track of Sir Walter as his son-in-law to make sure that Sir Walter never gets married again because we want to make sure that Sir Walter never has any sons because then that would keep Mr. Elliot in line to inherit. So that's very important to him. Um, it says, but he still is going to do something for his own interest and his own enjoyment. So he leaves Bath and then Mrs. Clay leaves Bath too and soon pops back up again in London under his protection. So when it says that she's as established under his protection in London, that means she's his mistress, right? So he has set her up in a house that he's either either owns or is paying the rent for. And uh, 
they're not married. So she has become his mistress. And that is, you know, explicitly stated out basically that he did that to make sure that she would never be able to marry Mr. or Sir Walter because Sir Walter would never marry her if she was Mr. Elliot's mistress. And uh, so that's the game he's playing to make sure that Sir Walter doesn't get married and doesn't marry Mrs. Mrs. Clay by taking Mrs. Clay out of the equation. And then we get to hear from Mrs. Clay's side that her, her affections had overpowered her interest. So her affection for Mr. Elliot had overpowered her interest in becoming a baronet, a lady. I don't know what's a baronet's wife called. Lady something, but I don't know. I don't know. She's not called a baronet. baronet. I don't know if she has a specific title. Of, uh, I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> the, the, it's clear that she doesn't really love like Sir Walter, right? She was only marrying him for his position and his money even though he doesn't have as much money anymore. Um, so for his position, so her affection for the younger man overpowered her interest or money, monetary interest in the older one. And and she had sacrificed for the young man's sake the possibility of scheming longer for Sir Walter. She has abilities, however, as well as affections, and it is now a doubtful point whether his cunning or hers may finally carry the day, whether after preventing her from being the wife of Sir Walter, he may not be wheedled and caressed at last into making her the wife of Sir William. So he has taken her off to London, and his plan was to just get her away from Sir Walter, so that um, so he, she's going to be his mistress in London, and the reason he sets her up that way is just to get her away from Sir Walter, make sure she never marries Sir Walter, but her game is more to get her him to marry her so she is as and i think there is saying that he's being wheedled and caressed i think that is a very sexual meaning like she is using sex to try and coerce him into marrying her that's what i'm reading that word caressed to mean into making her the wife of sir william so into getting mr elliot to marry mrs clay so that when he inherits she will then have that same title that she'd wanted in the first place but with a man that she likes better. So it's all working out beautifully for Mrs. Clay. And we don't know for sure that that's going to happen, but it says it is a now doubtful point whether his cunning or hers may finally carry the day. So they are both, in, they both have plans with each other. They're both cunning against each other. She thinks she's gone off to London to try and convince him to marry her. And he thinks that she he's setting her up as his mistress just to get her away from Sir Walter and... Let the games begin. They are both going to be playing each other. We shall see who wins in that. We Well, we won't because the book's about to end. But, you know, they're off in London messing with each other. And we'll see who... And they'll, you know, master... They're playing a game of wits to see who can win that. And so then Sir Walter and Elizabeth, again, were both mortified by the loss of their companion. And there's another great line here it says that they had their great cousins the dalrymples to be sure to resort to for two for comfort comfort but they must long feel that to flatter and follow others without being flattered flattered and followed in turn is but a state of half enjoyment so they are mortified that mrs clay has gone off to do this and that they've lost their companion but they're also upset because now they don't have anybody to serve the purpose that Mrs. Clay was serving of just like flattering and falling all over them. They need their, you know, sidekick, their minion, and they don't have one. And that's very sad for them. Whatever. Um, then we are back to talking a bit about Lady Russell saying that she has decided to love Captain Wentworth as she ought. And there was nothing else to like st stop her happiness of the prospects that arose from the consciousness other than the consciousness of having no relations to bestow on him which a man of sense could value. There she felt her own inferiority keenly. Their fortune was nothing. The disproportion of their fortune was nothing. It did not give her a moment's regret. But to have no family to receive and estimate him properly... Nothing of respectability, of harmony, of goodwill to offer in return for all the worth and all the prompt welcome which met her in his brothers and sisters. 
was a source as lively of pain as her mind could be well be sensible of under of under circumstances of otherwise strong felicity so she has two friends to add to his list just lady russell and mrs smith um but he seems to like them both it says that Lady Russell, in spite of her former transgressions, he could now value from the heart. And while he was not obliged to say that he believed her to have been right in originally dividing them, he was ready to say almost everything else in her favor. So he's not going to completely forgive and forget that situation in the past, but he's willing to move past it and say that she's a good person now and, you know, be friends with her anyway. And as for Mrs. Smith, she had claims of various kinds to recommend her quickly and permanently. So he likes Mrs. Smith more. I'm thinking her good offices of helping to um, help convince Anne that Mr. Elliot is a scoundrel. Um, so she was one of their, Mrs. Smith was one of their earliest visitor in their settled life. And Captain Wentworth helps her by helping putting himself out to write the letters and things to get her husband's property in the West Indies. Um, and so that fully requited the services which she had rendered or ever meant to render to his wife. And Mrs. Smith was not, this is very sarcastic. I think it says Mrs. Smith's enjoyments were not spoiled by this improvement of income with some improvement of health and the acquisition of such friends to be often with, for her cheerfulness and mental alacrity did not fail her, and while these prime supplies of good remained, she might have been defiance even to greater accessions to a worldly prosperity. She might have been absolutely rich and perfectly healthy, and yet be happy. Her spring of felicity was in the glow of her spirits, as her friend Anne's was in the warmth of her heart. So, I just find that funny. So, to me, that's saying that, like, She's kind of making fun, I think, Jane Austen, of this sort of trope of this wonderfully happy poor person who's so happy because they live such a simple, uncluttered poor life that is, I don't know, a a trope that doesn't actually make any sense in my opinion and I don't think is particularly true. Um, you know, this idea that money doesn't make you happy. You can be happy with nothing. Um, it's like a certain amount, of, which is... Uh, a thing that she's talked about a few times with this Mrs. Smith here, it's come up in Sense and Sensibility with the debate between Marion and Eleanor that I think is really good, but we'll get there when we get to that novel, which won't be for some time, probably. Um, and here again, she's kind of talking, in my mind at least, it's going to that idea of being poor, like this glorifying um, literature of this being destitute, but being happy anyway, because money doesn't buy you happiness. Um, isn't really true. And so she's sort of laughing that, so she's got more money and better health, but that didn't make her miserable. You know, uh, she was able to be happy anyway. Ha ha ha. Anyway. And this is bringing us to the last page of this entire novel. Um, so it says, Anne was tenderness itself and she had the full worth of it in Captain Wentworth's affections. His profession was all that could ever make her friends wish her to that, yeah, wish the tenderness less. The dread of a future war, all that could dim her sunshine. She gloried in being a sailor's wife, but she must pay the tax. Of quick alarm for belonging to that profession which is, if possible, more distinguished in its domestic virtues than in its national importance. The end. So, here, my reading of this is sort of, Again, I don't know. <sighs> Sarcastic. It's for lack of a better word. That's um, saying that the dread of a future war, all that could dim her sunshine. So she's so happy and she loves him so much. And the only reason she can marry him is because of his profession in the Navy that made him rich enough and grand enough to be, you know, eligible to marry her, but she's also doesn't, you know, she likes the prestige of being a sailor's wife, but she's worried about a future war. And timeline wise of when this book is set, it's set during the time 
of like, I guess it was like the false peace. Is that what they call it? Um, during the French Revolution when Napoleon is on the island of Elba, I believe. I am pulling this out of my, you know, where I don't have this in front of me, but there's during that time he's put in exile, I think on Elba. And um, there is a, a period of time, a year or two where it's where they're at peace with France while he's out. And then he somehow, you know, starts the war up again for a little bit pretty soon after. So when she's saying this, that, you know, she's perfectly happy. And the only thing that could make her sad would be, if she, you know, if the war started up again, or if a war started up and her husband was off, you know, at war again, um, and Jane Austen writing this knows that she has set this novel in a period of sort of false peace when the war is going to be starting up again very soon. Um, and the people reading this right at the time would know also that this is, this whole novel is set in this period of very minimum of peace that doesn't last very long before the war starts up again. So I think it's a very ironic, irony, that's a better word than sarcastic. I think that it's a very sort of ironic way to put this, that Anne is so happy and everything's great. And the only thing that can make it bad would be if a war started, knowing that where she's placed this in history, a war is about to get restarted. Now, I don't think it goes very long. And then, you know, there's more peace than there has been for a while. But still, the idea that Jane Austen knows that she's writing this, um, this writing that the dread of a future war, all that could dim her sunshine. She knows that that war is very much on the horizon and going to happen any minute now. Um, and so Anne is going to have to deal with being the wife of a captain in the Navy who is probably going to be off dealing with the war with France again very, very soon. And um, so she is going to have to pay the tax. And I think the last line of the entire novel, so the last sentence I'm going to read again, says she gloried in being a sailor's wife, but she must pay the tax of quick alarm for belonging to that profession, which is, if possible, more distinguished in its domestic virtues than in its national importance. And I don't know, it's just, is this some sort of thing about the Navy or the military or something? I mean, I think we're definitely playing into this idea of like how hard it could be to be a sailor's wife, um, that her husband could be gone for long amounts of time and be off in danger, could die, all of that. Um, and so saying that it is more distinguished in its domestic virtues than in its national importance, meaning that you like the sailors better. I, I'm reading this. I'm not sure if exactly what this means. Or what it's supposed to mean but my interpretation of it my reading of this novel would be that this is happening is that she's saying basically that kind of the same idea that like it comes up in pride and prejudice a lot where the younger girls are all obsessed with the militia men and the officers and marrying a military man being such a cool thing to do and i think that's where i'm getting from this last line is this is that concept of it's so cool to think you're going to marry a military man. You're going to marry a Navy guy, a sailor um, until you have to deal with the fact that they're gone all the time and that they're in danger and like the anxiety of them being in danger and all of that putting, making it a lot less romantic than at first it seems to be. And I think that's a very interesting way to end the novel. At least where my mind goes with this is that, you know, this last chapter, they're all happy and in love and very romantic. And then this sort of epilogue chapter is basically like what, how everyone reacted to the wedding, how everyone reacted to the marriage, including them. And that they are very, very happy and everything's great. But she's worried about a future war, which we know as readers is about to happen. And, uh, yeah, I just... I think it just leaves it on a very sort of depressing note, which I think the whole thing has been sort of depressing. Um, not completely. Like, it's just very contemplative note. It's very, she got her happy ending or did she? Because we have no way to know. He's about to go, you know, he's a captain in the Navy. 
he's I'm sure going to go fight in this next war with France. And I'm sure some people are going to die in that war and it could be Captain Wentworth. We don't know that. Anne doesn't know that. He might come home and be fine and be safe. but Or he could die. And as the captain's wife, it sounds like she might be able to go on the ship with him. She might stay home. If she goes with him, she might see some really horrible things. And what is that going to do to her in her life? I don't know. Um, it just seems like... Yeah, it just... I don't know. I'm just very kind of down on this ending. It feel, it's not a like, and they all lived happily ever after and skip around happy music. This is very contemplative and it is sort of a happy ending, but is it? I, I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It's a lot is what it is. And I don't know that it's a purely happy ending. I think Anne got what she wanted. But is what she wanted what's going to make her happy? I think it'll make her... I think she will be a lot happier married to Captain Wentworth than she was living with her family who are awful. So her dad and her older sister. That's true. So, I mean, yes, she's happier. But what will she do if he dies? Honestly, I think she should then move in with the Admiral and his sister. That'd be better. She'd be happier there. Or now as a widow, she could go live with Mrs. Smith or something. I think she'll be okay. And hopefully he's not going to die immediately. But, um, yeah, I just think it's very interesting that she ends with that idea of, like, I just, as a reader of the time period, I think she makes it very specific what year things are happening in a way that she doesn't always in her other novels where you don't know exactly what year things are, like, when exactly things are happening. A lot, most of her other novels were just kind of guessing on the year based on when it was published and stuff. But she puts very specific dates in this one. Like what date everyone's born, how old they are, so you know exactly what date it is now. Um, when things happened. Like there are very specific dates. You can make a very specific timeline out of this book in a way you can't in many of the others. And in my opinion, having now read to the end, the way the reason that you need specific dates and timelines is because this book is set in a very specific place in time. It is set in that sort of false peace during the French Revolution for a very important reason. Because that would be a good time for Captain Wentworth to be free from his military service and want to be able to, you know, wander around the countryside and go to Bath and all of that and not have any other sort of calls on his time. So that makes sense. But also because that leaves us open to this ending where Anne, just that line is sticking with me. The dread of a future war, all that could dim her sunshine. There's going to be a future war. And we know it. It's happening soon. Within like a year. So... It's not going to be, it's not going to be long until she has to deal with that thing that's going to dampen her sunshine. And I think it's very purposeful that you end on that to be a sort of ironic, happy ending and a very much happy for now. Not, you know, like if you read the romance novels, happily ever after versus a happily for now, happy for now. I feel like this ends on a very much a happy for now. And I wonder what the happily ever after would look like and what is going to happen for Anne in the future. So with the end of that, that is the end of Persuasion. And I have now read all six of Jane Austen's major novels and I've also read Lady Susan. Um, I've also read a couple of things from her juvenilia, but not definitely not all of it. Um, but I, you know, I'm very happy to have read all six of her novels now. Persuasion was the last one that I had never read before reading it for this podcast. And I wonder if doing it this, the way I did for this podcast, reading one chapter at a time and trying to talk it through each time, um, maybe was not the best idea. <laughs> 
I usually do tend to sort of be more of a, I guess, binge reader. I read really, read it really quick, go through it very quickly. And I didn't with this novel. And I wonder if that was part of why I didn't enjoy it as much as I could have. I'm, I'm going to give it a break for a while. I'm not ready to reread it right now, but I do think I want to reread it and read it more in my usual style of reading and see if that helps me feel better about it. Um, maybe listen to the audiobook or something. I don't know. I just didn't come away with an overall hugely positive view. I think it's a good book, but it's definitely not my favorite of Jane Austen. And I feel like this may be just me knowing that it was published after her death and that it wasn't up to her standards. I wonder if it's really finished. I really feel like there should be more to it than it is. That it's too short, too simple. Especially some of the stuff with like Mrs. Smith and Lady Russell at the end doesn't feel fully fleshed out. I don't know. I just, I wonder what it would have turned into if she had lived. I really wonder if it was actually finished or not. Um, and this is something that comes up with like uh, Northanger Abbey as well. The two books that I've read so far for this podcast of being very short novels for her. And that maybe now Northanger Abbey was ready for her to publish when she first published it, but it definitely wasn't in her style of writing when she, by the later times. Um, and I really think with Persuasion, I'm not, I'm not convinced that it was done. Like it is a full complete story, but the way at least I've heard that she usually wrote her stories, which she would kind of start with the first story and then she would come back and add things and expand and grow and add new scenes and new things and backstories and whatnot. I kind of feel like this book could use that. And I, it's still a book written by Jane Austen. It's still got some beautiful lines, some great stuff. It's not, I'm not trying to come off as if like, oh, it sucks. It's not a great, it's not a good book. Like, that's not it. It's a good book. I just, I did not find it as enjoyable to read as most of the other novels that I've read um, from her. And... I don't know I just didn't come away with this overall like happy peppy feeling from it um yeah I just I feel very conflicted about how I feel about this novel and I really do wonder if it was done like finished I am wondering if there's more to it that should be there that isn't there and this is one where I really feel like it could have been something very different maybe more if it had been fleshed out the way that Jane Austen liked to flesh out other things. And the conflicted part of that is like, because parts of it really dragged on for me. Like there are parts of it that went on too long. Like the first half of the novel where they're just sitting around in upper cross and there's chapter after chapter of Anne just sitting there being all sad and mopey about not about Captain Wentworth, not loving her anymore. Felt like it dragged on for eons. So I don't know. I don't know why I feel like it should be expanded when I felt like it was already too long in some ways. Because it did. It did. I felt like it dragged in places. Um, I felt like it was a lot sometimes. But then. So maybe the first half was fleshed out as much as it needed to be in the second half wasn't. I don't know. There's just maybe fleshing out isn't even the right thing. Maybe it didn't need more information. Maybe it needed better editing or something. I'm not sure. I just. I didn't love it as much as I was hoping I was going to love it because so many people will say that they love it online. When I see people like ranking their favorite Jane Austen, they're not the Jane Austen novels in order. Persuasion is one that's often up on the top. And I would say like 90% of the time, if not more, if their favorite novel isn't Pride and Prejudice, it's Persuasion. It's so well liked and loved. And I, I'm not quite getting it. If you love Persuasion, please write in and tell me why. Tell me why Persuasion is great. I am not quite seeing it. I thought that there were some really great moments. There's some really great scenes. The writing itself is fabulous. There are beautiful, I highlighted lines in every chapter that were just poetic and beautiful and wonderful. And yet when I'm done with the book, I'm just kind of feeling meh about the whole situation. And I don't know, again, that I'm doing a very good job of expressing why I feel so meh about it. But I do. And I feel accomplished to have finished it, but I'm not 
feeling the warm and happy glow that I sometimes feel or that I think I feel for most of the others. So I don't know. I didn't love it, but it was but it was good and it was definitely worth reading. And I probably will read it again. And when I'm saying I didn't love it as much as I loved everything else, like everything Jane Austen wrote is still at least a four star. It's just maybe not a five star, in my opinion. But I would lo really love to hear if any of you have thoughts one way or the other about that. Let me know. I'm always interested to hear and have a debate and see if you can make me love it. Tell me why it's so wonderful and magical. Most of what I'd heard before I ever read the novel was just that that letter from Captain Wentworth was just so beautiful and so romantic. And I mean, it is a very sweet romantic letter. And that last chapter of them, like, figuring things out and talking is, is, is pretty, is beautiful. I just, I don't know. Maybe I'm not as invested in the characters as I should be. Maybe it's something with that whole, like, Lady Russell thing that I kept dealing with that I didn't like her. I'm not sure. I just... Maybe there just weren't enough likable characters for me. Because I feel like I didn't really like anybody but Anne. And maybe Captain Wentworthy. And even Captain Wentworth I didn't like half the time. Because he was being such a jerk about things. Um, no, the Crofts. I like the Crofts. Um, but even like the Musgroves. They're kind of meh. I didn't really love the Musgroves. They're better than the Elliots. Except for Anne. But they're not great. I don't know maybe it was just I wasn't invested the characters I didn't really get emotionally invested I didn't love the characters the way I do in some other ones I'm not sure what it is but I am left feeling very meh so now I want to talk switch gears from the book itself to some of the adaptations so I know of three different movie adaptations of this book um from one from the 70s one from the 90s and one from I think 2007 2000s um i've watched all three of them now since reading the book and it matches right up with how i felt about the book they found them all very meh <laughs> um meh is apparently my new favorite word um if i if that is getting if you quite don't quite know what that means i mean it feels very mediocre very middle of the road very you know not emotionally invested they were all fine, I guess. Especially the 1970s one, but all of them like did not apparently have the movie magic budget to do the part where Louisa fell and hit her head very well. So it was kind of comical in those scenes most of the time. Um, the 70s one I really did not enjoy. It was way too stilted. Um... I don't know how the acting was just weird. It was very stilted and strange to me. Um, it was just the way that they were acting in the seventies. I don't know. Maybe it's more like stage acting or something, but it, it didn't feel right. The two newer ones were much better. I think I liked the 2007, the most recent one, the best. I don't know if that's just because it was the most recent one and seemed like the best quality to me video quality and stuff but I did think that that was probably the best made one but even that one I felt just kind of mediocre about although I think it was that one I'm forgetting now it's either that one or the 90s one that ends with them like in a circus for some reason that was an interesting touch to try and give interest or whatever I don't know yeah when they end up in the circus when they're walking around bath at the end that's really weird. That was an odd choice. Um, but yeah, I didn't have strong emotional reactions to any of them. So that's why I'm not really like going through scene by scene the way I did with Northanger Abbey. Um, I just don't have a lot to say. I don't know. I feel like I've already said it all going through the book. Like going through the movie would be the same thing. I don't have a lot more to add and I don't feel the need to really go into all of it. I felt like if you're going to watch any of them, I think the most recent one. Um, I am interested to know that it seems like there are two versions of Persuasion that are currently being made. One's for Netflix. One's for maybe some other, I don't know, for somebody else. Um, maybe even coming in theaters. But So there are going to be two new Persuasions coming out soon, I think. So that 
I will definitely want to watch both of them and see what I think. Um, but I'm not holding out too high of hopes either because I haven't been too thrilled with any of that stuff yet. With one notable exception that I do want to get to is an adaptation called on YouTube that's called Rational Creatures. It is not done, which is so upsetting because it's the only one I like of all these adaptations. The only thing that I've watched so far that is a persuasion adaptation is, that I've really gotten interested and excited about is Rational Creatures. So Rational Creatures is trying to be a, is doing like little YouTube stories of, and it's a modern adaptation of Persuasion, but they've only got maybe like five or six episodes. Um, and so it doesn't get very far into the novel or into the story before it's just done. It's not finished. And they did season one a long time ago. Then they did like crowdfunding to try and get enough money for what they're calling season two, which would have been the rest of the book. And then COVID hit. And so they didn't do the filming that they were planning to do. And I haven't heard that they're going to do the filming. I mean, we're still basically in COVID kind of. I am recording this right now in August of 2021 when the numbers are going way back up again and the Delta variant is out and all of that. So who knows when they're ever going to get to film the rest of it. I hope they actually do, though, because I really do want to see what happens in their version. Um, the Rational Creatures version is a modern re redo of the story. And, you know, um, with some changes like Mary and Charlie are a lesbian couple instead of, you know, and her... Charlie's little brother Luis instead of Louisa and so with that love triangle between um Wentworth Frederick Wentworth and Anne Elliot and Louisa Musgrove that makes Fred Wentworth have to be bi I suppose or pan or something along those lines it's going into those sorts of directions it's got like gay couples and things and I'm I'm very interested to see how that plays out. And I was very interested in how that changed things already. Um, so I was very interested. I was intrigued. I wanted to keep watching and see how that ended. And I'm very sad that that, as I'm recording this in August of 2021, is not finished yet. But hopefully it will be finished. Um, but if you haven't watched that yet, I highly recommend going and watching those five episodes that do exist because they're really good. And it's very interesting. And so far, it's my favorite piece of persuasion, you know, stuff that's out there. I really have I really enjoyed watching what I could watch of that. And so I'm keeping my fingers crossed, hoping that they will eventually finish doing their the series for Rational Creatures, because I'm very excited about that. And that is pretty much what I've got to say for persuasion. I um, honestly, sadly, am kind of happy to be done. I feel very bad to say that. I mean, people love it. It's a Jane Austen novel and I'm obsessed with Jane Austen. So I feel bad. I almost feel guilty for not having liked it better than I did. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but that's how I'm feeling. I'm feeling sort of guilty for not loving it. But I don't think I really did. Um... And as a palate cleanser, I'm going to go move on to my absolute favorite so that I can get back into the mojo of loving Jane Austen and loving this whole thing. So when I come back next time, we are going to talk about Pride and Prejudice, my favorite Jane Austen novel, probably my favorite novel just in general of all time. I love Pride and Prejudice. I have very strong feelings. I have very strong opinions about various adaptations that will get people probably mad at me. Because that's what it seems to happen on the internet when anybody talks about these things. When we talk about the 2005 versus the 1995 debate that is out there. I have strong opinions. I will tell you what they are eventually, but not today. Um, but I'm very excited for that. So this week's little episode is the closure of Persuasion. And we'll be back next time to start dipping into the wonderful world of Pride and Prejudice. I'm very excited for that, and I can't wait to start. Bye.